Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. Now, if you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit teaoggn.org. That's Tango Echo Alpha Oscar Golf Golf November.org. And there will be a link in the show notes. I can tell you these guys are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence. That's their big push. That's their drive. And it's what they spend all their time doing. So if you want to learn more about them, please sign up for their newsletter. Go check them out and show our sponsors some love. They make this show possible, and we very much appreciate them. All right. Welcome to the program. My huddled masses, I am your diminutive, aforementioned ATM of a reckless opinion, Jordan Driscoll. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. And tonight I am uh, sipping on a nice breakfast blend. You know, I'm feeling kind of counterfactual, so it's 9 o'clock at night. Let's have a breakfast blend. Mmm. Tasty. All right, so for tonight's episode, we're actually going to hit a couple of news articles I think are just kind of interesting. Um, Originally, my plan was to do a big piece on uh, probably like the 10 biggest... uh, um, geopolitical scandals uh, that affected the industry. And I've got some interesting ones on there, you know, Teapot Dome, Watergate, uh, you know, the Deepwater Horizon, all that sort of stuff. But there's a lot of research involved. And um, on top of that, cutting it down to a runtime that'll work is is obviously tricky. So it might wind up being multi-part. I don't know. We'll see how my, um, how my, how much I can condense my notes into something workable. Um, but that is coming down the pipeline uh, here in, in the next little while, as well as, of course, uh, you know, my Iran episode at some point. So we've got some exciting stuff coming. And um, I'll probably also, uh, I have an episode on the docket down the road on uh, why we hate Woodrow Wilson, which we'll get to. But for tonight, we're going to hit on a couple of news articles that are current as of the date of recording, which is probably about a week before this episode's going to go out. So we're going to call it... Uh, let's see, what's the uh, 5th of March, Sunday night when I'm recording. Okay, so what do we got? So first off, we've got, uh, in Europe, we'll start there, we've got Turkey is continuing to block Finland and Sweden from joining NATO. Now, just to give you guys a brief update on that situation, or a little bit of background, I should say, right after the Ukraine war kicked off, uh, and ostensibly one of the things that was supposedly a goal of the whole Ukraine 
you know, special military operation, as Russia likes to call it, was to prevent the expansion of NATO. And ironically enough, this conflict took Finland and Sweden from being historically non-aligned countries to definitively applying to join NATO, which is the complete opposite of what Putin wanted. Now, on the surface of it, this seems like a good thing. Growing NATO, containing Russia, all that sort of good stuff, presumably is what Western powers want. Now, the biggest problem is that Turkey has decided that they are putting the kibosh on this. In order for NATO to join, it has to have unanimous consent among all the NATO members. And that's predominantly due to the fact that the way the NATO alliance is structured, uh, everybody has to agree to defend any party if they get attacked. It's a really big military alliance. And so obviously everyone has to sign off on everyone that gets involved. In this case, there's two countries that are currently blocking Finland and Sweden's entry into NATO, and that is Turkey and Hungary. Uh, ironically enough, the the name of one country is how you feel right before you eat the other thing, Hungary and Turkey. So here we are. Now, the reasons for this being blocked are extensively different, although they are somewhat related. Um, Turkey, as we discussed in a few episodes back, has had some economic hardship in the late 2010s and uh, to current, and Russia's been a major lifeline for them. Likewise, they've formed kind of a symbiotic relationship with Russia since Russia's undergoing all these sanctions. Turkey's buying all this oil from them on the cheap, refining it in Turkey with their large refinery base, and selling it with a Made in Turkey sticker to get around sanctions, which is both helping Russia's economy, and it's also boosting Turkey's economy. So Turkey is very much not wanting to piss off Vladimir Putin, uh, our friendly neighborhood Russian despot. Now, for this reason, Putin does not want NATO to grow, i.e. he wants Finland and Sweden blocked. Erdogan, president of Turkey, is obliging in order to keep his new ally fairly happy. Turkey's also buying the S-400 missiles from Russia, which is what got them kicked out of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. Again, we've covered all that a few episodes back. But the point is, these political entanglements have caused Turkey to give in to Russian uh, desires and block Finland and Sweden joining. Now, there's a big NATO summit in July. July, I think it's 10th or 11th, where all the heads of NATO meet, and they are supposed to vote on officially letting these countries in. And if anybody says no, then pretty much that's just the end of it. Um, uh that's just the end of it as far as that process goes. So there's a lot of back-channel talking trying to get them on board with this, and the same thing with Hungary. So <clears throat> we've covered what Turkey's problem here is. Now, what are the odds Turkey's going to change their mind? There's kind of two camps on this right now. There's the more optimistic side of things that thinks that they're going to wait till the very last minute, try and extract as many um, concessions as they can out of NATO in order to get what they want, and then they'll relent at the 11th hour and vote to let them in. Uh, on the other hand, there's the more pessimistic group that thinks that they are way too deep in bed with Russia, that they are not going to change their mind and risk any sort of trouble with them and Putin, and so they're just going to block this thing all the way through, and it's going to leave Finland and Sweden kind of out in the cold. Now, something to keep in mind on this is Finland and Sweden have historically been very neutral nations. They've been very uh, non-aligned. They refuse to take sides up until the invasion of Ukraine, where they have very much come out both against Russia and wanting to move further west and join NATO. If they don't get to join NATO, they have very much put themselves as a target for Russia, who 
has made comments that perhaps regime change needs to happen in NATO in uh, Finland and Sweden as well after they declared their intention to join NATO. And so they very much put targets on their back, and if they don't get into NATO, they're going to be kind of left out in the cold and possibly looking like a target. Now, to be fair, Russia's military has proven to be, at least on the ground and in the air, wildly incompetent at capturing um, Ukraine. And it must be said that Finland and Sweden both have considerably more modern militaries as it sits. And they're already really, really close allies of NATO, even if they're not officially members. So... Do I think that there's going to be another invasion? Probably not. Russia doesn't have the money for it, and quite frankly, they're not going to have a functioning ground force to exercise such a conflict, even if they wanted to. So it's not really going to escalate beyond that, in my opinion. That being said, it would be something of a dick move to not let them in NATO, considering they've shown interest in joining, and at this point, they've actually been (laughs) much more um, agreeable than Turkey, a current member, has. Now, Turkey's official reason for not wanting to let them in is obviously not because they're friends with Putin. That's just the subtext. The stated reason is because there are members of the Turkish Workers' Party that are living in Finland and Sweden that Turkey wants extradited to um, back to Turkey in order to be tried and sent to jail. And basically, Finland and Sweden are saying, yeah, these guys haven't broken any laws here. They haven't done anything. We're not going to do it. And Turkey's saying, well, until you do, we're not going to relent and... Um, Uh, let you guys in NATO. Now, is that really enough to justify Turkey's position? Eh, Probably not. And again, I really think it's way more about the economic benefits they have with Russia more than anything else. I think that's just a very convenient excuse. Now, one of the things that will potentially change this calculus for Turkey in specific is what happens in the Turkish elections. As we covered before, the Turkish elections are going to happen in May. And this is the first set of presidential elections that Erdogan is looking like he's going to face some very serious challenge. There's a lot of consternation over his leadership of Turkey. There's a lot of backlash he's faced. um, And it's been growing and growing and growing for the past, you know, four or five years. And it's kind of hitting a little bit of a boiling point with how he has handled this whole situation with the earthquake a few weeks ago. So it is possible that there could be a very different government elected just before this NATO summit, and that may very well change this entire calculus. A more Western-friendly president uh, may come in and not have a problem with it. Uh, By the same token, Erdogan might win, and we may be stuck dealing with him. There's also the possibility that no matter how the election goes, he's going to win because of all the electioneering that's happened in the presidential elections of the past, and namely in the governmental elections where they went from a parliamentary democracy to an executive presidential democracy, which, for reasons I've already covered, was probably not the most legitimate election they could have possibly had. But that's a topic we've already covered. If you want to hear it, go back a few episodes. Either way, that is the big issue that we're running into with Turkey. Now, on the other hand, you have Hungary. And Hungary has been a little bit less overtly belligerent. Um, Instead of saying that they are not going to approve Finnish and Swedish membership unless they get their certain demands, instead, they have just been decidedly noncommittal. And what that means is that they just said, oh, yeah, you know, it'd be really nice um, if they join, but hey, you know, they don't really talk about us in a way that we like. And what is the problem with Hungary? Well, the problem with Hungary currently is that the president of Hungary, uh, 
but not even president, Prime Minister Viktor Orban, has, um, you know, he's said that he's not opposed to it, but he keeps finding ways to just stall the decision from happening. And a lot of people think he's going to just drag his feet into the 11th hour and then, you know, try and squeeze some concessions out of NATO or the European Union countries um, to get what he wants in order to, you know, flip his vote and make it happen at the last minute. Uh, ultimately, he's been probably one of the friendliest European leaders to Putin um, in the past several years. And a lot of people think that he's getting pressure from Putin to also be a roadblock on this. Um, at the end of the day, it's been said that Orban has been very much kind of leaning sort of in a similar Turkish-Russian sort of triangle towards more authoritarian and dictatorial rule. And there have been a lot of police excesses and a lot of governmental excesses that have been happening under his uh, reign that have made him a little bit more of an issue and have put him a little bit more squarely in the Putin camp. He said a lot of nice things about Putin. It's been a little bit more dodgy about uh, condemning the Ukraine invasion, that kind of thing. Um, that being said, he's a lot less hard-assed about it than Erdogan in Turkey, and so the assumption is he's more than likely going to flip on this, assuming Turkey does. But as long as Turkey's holding out, he's going to hold out, and he's going to try and squeeze concessions. That's the one that's more likely to flip. I think Turkey... I don't want to be pessimist about pessimistic about it, but my assumption is is that Erdogan's financially got way too much money tied up in the whole Russia situation. They're they're not going to change course unless the presidential election goes really really differently. Now there is also the possibility that Turkey has you know on the and this is this is the outside, but it's possible that if that election goes really poorly, you might see an actual you know coup type scenario or some sort of an actual armed conflict breakout in Turkey over how the election goes. Uh, again, I think that's a little bit more of an outside possibility, but Turkey has had a history of military coups and intervention in politics, and I do think there's a lot of simmering unrest in Turkey right now, and it's not inconceivable that that could happen again, especially if people think that they get screwed up in an election. So it's something to keep an eye on, and we'll undoubtedly be updating you guys uh, as that happens. So, uh, moving right along, we have got our next item to cover, and that's in the Middle East. Now, uh, what we've got here is we've got a situation with Iran, basically the UN watchdog for nuclear stuff, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, has done an inspection on uranium reactors, and they found that one of the reactors is producing enriched uranium particles that are currently sitting at 83.7% purity. Now, here's the deal. In order to make a nuclear weapon, a viable nuclear weapon, you have to have 90% purity. So they are getting quite, quite close. They historically have been enriching it between 40 and 60% purity, and in the past couple of years, since the end of the deal with Iran in 2018, they have skyrocketed the amount of purity they're producing at. Now, they've offered no explanation, at least as of this recording, to that, and are not really addressing it, but those are the numbers that have come out from the UN. Um, presumably, at least according to what was reported back in 2018 when America pulled out of the nuclear deal, it was said they were a good decade away from creating 90% fissionable material, and it looks like at this point they are a lot closer to that. The current suspicion is that they could get there pretty much any time now. Um, now, are they going to make nukes? I would say the answer is probably yes, and I would say they're probably 
deliberately allowing this information to get out to try and edge their way politically into getting economic sanctions lifted and all of that sort of stuff. And so they're kind of using this as an edge and bluff to force everyone to take them seriously and give in to their demands. They're facing a lot of pressure in Iran right now, what with civil unrest that's been ongoing since the Arab Spring started in the 2010s. And my guess is that, one, this isn't actually going to change anything. I don't think anybody's going to do anything fast enough to prevent it. And I think what we're going to wind up with is an Iran that does have usable nuclear weapons. And more than likely before 2025, probably in the next, I would say, 12 to 24 months, if I had to take a guess, uh, they're right there. And I don't think uh, you know the international political scene is going to move fast enough for their liking, and they're just going to go ahead and create their own nuclear deterrence, which is a whole other issue we need to be concerned about, but here we are. So, that being said, um, that is also going to be a situation that we should probably be keeping our eye on. Uh, moving right along, what do we got here? We have got Asia. Now, a few episodes back, we talked about Xi Jinping and the situation in China. This week, we actually managed to get ourselves a uh, session of the National People's Congress, which is ostensibly the highest power in the land in China. Now, as I previously said, it's effectively a rubber stamp organization. It's got about 3,000 members. It's a wildly massive, huge bureaucratic organization. Um, But it does have certain specific powers that it does have to exercise. Namely, it has to certify the election of the president, and it has to approve all the laws that are passed in in between its sessions. Now, to give you guys a quick update, and I don't remember how much I talked about this on the China episode, so I'll kind of run through this a little fast right now. In a very nutshelled fashion, the way the Chinese government works is, and this is actually something that's pretty much across the board with any number of Soviet nations, so this is not exclusive to China. It was very much the same way in the Soviet Union and in several other Soviet bloc countries. You have this large legislative body, in this case the National People's Congress, which has a lot of people, in this case 3,000. Now that's too many people to actually get anything done in a useful fashion, so what they do is they elect smaller and smaller committees that are allowed to make decisions as if they were the whole committee throughout the year, so things like the Politburo and and whatnot. And um, those smaller committees can pass laws, make edicts, do whatever. uh, basically, the president, you know, uh, pretty much has his finger on the scale and can appoint, for the most part, whoever he wants there. And then once a year, for a couple of weeks, when this giant session of the People's Congress meets, they are supposed to review everything that these smaller councils have done and approve it um, or strike it down. Obviously, a lot of things happen in a year, and a giant committee of three thousand people is not going to be able to efficiently break down all of these laws and edicts. And so they wind up just rubber stamping it through and saying, okay, yes, this was already made law, so we approve it. Boom, boom, boom. It's official, official. So that's pretty much kind of how it works. It'd be like if you took the U.S. Congress and appointed five people uh, from the House of Representatives and five people from the Senate and said, congratulations, these 10 people have all the powers of Congress in between sessions. And then when Congress gets together once a year, they'll, they'll, you know, and they'll rein it in and make sure everything's hunky-dory. Uh, obviously, it, it does not work well in practice. It consolidates the power really, really top-heavy uh, because it's just too big and unwieldy of a body to work efficiently. Um, at any rate, uh, the party does have to meet, and one of the things it has to do is 
certify the election of the president. Now, as we talked about before Xi Jinping during the 20, I think it was 18 session, uh, convinced the Chinese National uh, People's Congress to strike down the term limits provision in the Constitution, which they did. And he has now completed his second term as president, and he has now been officially elected as uh, in his third term as president, because why not? Now, technically, uh, the general consensus is, is that he's probably going to be a president for more or less life because he has a stranglehold on the government. And that stranglehold has only increased as of this sitting of the National People's Congress. The Politburo, which is one of those smaller, high-up-the-food-chain committees that governs the country with the president in between sessions of the People's National Congress, uh, did have a few members who were dissenting with Xi Jinping, and it's a seven-man committee. And the last couple of members who were dissenting with him actually got voted out and replaced and rubber-stamped by the People's National Congress, which means that the whole of the Chinese upper government is now pretty much filled with people who are cast-iron, hardcore Xi Jinping loyalists. And so this does present an interesting situation because previously he had a near stranglehold on the government. Now he has an absolute stranglehold on the government. And let's be honest, we've already talked about a lot of the things that China plans on doing with their reshaping of global trade, with the nine-dash line situation, their aggressive expansion on the South China Sea. They have publicly said they have every intention of seeing Taiwan forcefully reintegrated to the mainland of China, crack down on dissent, all the things. So this is obviously not great because it pretty much ensures that Xi Jinping is going to be in power basically as long as he wants, with very little to stand in his way. Among the things that the uh, the Communist Party announced, and specifically Xi Jinping, is that they are expecting 5% economic growth for 2023, which is considerably lower than the projections they've been using over the past couple of decades. It'll be probably the slowest year of growth for China that we've seen, and a lot of that comes into how they handled COVID and the zero-COVID policy, which is a whole other conversation, and a little beyond the scope of this podcast right now, but uh, they are expecting... A much more constricted financial growth. But what's interesting is they've also announced that they plan on doing a 7% increase in military spending. And keep in mind, while the United States spends a hell of a lot more on its military than China does in a pound-for-pound equation, the Chinese military is no slouch. They have at this point the largest air force, the largest navy, and the largest army in the world. And technologically, they're really not that far off. They've got some pretty solid equipment. So this is Pretty interesting and pretty telling that they are publicly admitting to yet another 7% increase in military spending. And, you know, we really need to keep an eye on that as we move into, you know, further along in this decade. Um, Do I think it's going to come to war with Taiwan? I would say it's not inconceivable. The biggest problem with the Taiwan situation is that up until the invasion of Ukraine— there was a very simple calculus, right? I mean, Russia looked at their military, they looked at Ukraine's military, and they said, well, very obviously, by every piece of math on the planet, we have the numbers, we're going to steamroll them, and we'll be in and out within two weeks, no problem at all. That hasn't really worked out, as we've just crested a year in Ukraine with our friends in Russia. 
Taiwan is a more tricky situation because, one, it's an island, and while it's not all that far away from China, it is an island, and that amphibious operation creates a much more complicated situation logistically for an invasion. Secondly, Taiwan has been buying military equipment from the United States for literally decades. They have probably one of the most technologically capable militaries in that part of the world, aside from like Australia or, you know, someone like that, China, not China, uh, Japan. Japan and Australia really the two closest militaries to U.S. parity out there and certainly nowhere near as large. Uh, that's parity just on a technological scale. But nonetheless, Taiwan is right there. They've got a lot of U.S. military equipment. They've got a lot of that stuff, and they they very aggressively try to defend their airspace and their territorial uh, integrity at sea. China obviously has them outnumbered massively and is technologically no slouch, but as China has watched this Ukraine war go on, they're realizing that it's not quite as easy a calculus as they initially thought. That's my belief anyway. Um, so do I think that we are on the cusp of an invasion of Taiwan? My answer to that is not yet, but I do think they are redoing the math. I, I think they want to, and I think that they probably were planning on it, would be my guess. And I think this invasion of Taiwan has made them rethink that and go back to the drawing board and kind of really start sharpening their pencils to make sure that they're getting their numbers right. Because by all counts, what's happening in the Ukraine should not have happened by every you know analyst's prediction prior to the invasion. Um, and Taiwan is not Ukraine. So I, I think it's going to slow them down and make them think a little bit harder. But I am not saying that that absolutely means it's not going to happen. I think... There's still a very high likelihood of it, but maybe not quite as soon as anybody expected. Uh, if the AMC general in the Air Force is to be believed, he says by 2025 or sooner, I don't know that it'll be that fast, but that's really just going to depend. Mm. All right, so the um, next item to talk about here is going to be... Let's see what we got here. Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nor well, we'll come back to North America. We're going we're gonna to cover South America right quick because this is a fun one. It's a uh, not a fun It's an easy one. It's an easy one. And that is, of course, the Falkland Islands. So evidently the flare-up between Britain and Argentina is cranking back up again over the Falkland Islands. Uh, for those of you that don't know or don't know the history on it, maybe – one day I'll do an episode on it. Um, one of the last major conflicts between two fairly large, close-to-peer state powers was the Falkland Islands War, which happened back in 1982. Uh, <clears throat> it was a fight between the United Kingdom and Argentina. And it was actually, it's one of the most studied, because it's one of the most recent military conflicts with two very close-to-technological parity militaries out there. And it's a study in logistics because if you haven't looked at the globe lately, they're basically on opposite sides of the planet. The United Kingdom is way up in upper Europe and the Falkland Islands and Argentina are down at the very bottom tip of South America. So a really long way away. And initially what happened, I'm just going to do a very quick nutshell. Um, Argentina, their core belief is, is that Spain ceded the Falkland Islands to them back in the 1800s. Uh, Britain 
contends that they've occupied and owned the Falkland Islands since then, and Argentina's never owned them, so or they've never occupied them, so it's theirs. A referendum was held back in the, um, I think it was the late 70s or early 80s, and basically like 99% of the population voted to stay in the United Kingdom, which seems pretty cut and dry. Also, I would remind you that the Falkland Islands, at least at the time, had a population of like I don't know, a thousand, maybe two thousand people. So we're not talking about a huge population. So we're talking about a very small, sparsely populated set of islands. Um, and you know, hey, some windswept specks of rock are worth fighting and dying over, right? So basically, there was this referendum. The people living there said no; they wanted to stay in the UK. Um, Argentina, who was having a series of economic and political issues at the time. Uh, decided that the best thing to do was pull a Russia and do a short, victorious war to spark patriotic fervor. Don't you love how this is? It's the same strategy every time. These guys never, they always do the same thing. It's always the exact same play. They have the same playbook. Let's get some new, let's get some new plays in there, guys. Anyway, so they invade the Falklands, and the original calculus was that there was no chance Great Britain could respond militarily. The Falkland Islands are right next to Argentina, effectively, and Great Britain is like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles away on the other side of the planet, so there's no way that the downsized British military can get all the way over there and support a war effort. The logistics alone were mind-boggling. Um, Margaret Thatcher uh, pretty much decided that, yeah, no, we were definitely going to war with, uh, with Argentina, and we're definitely taking the Falklands back, and they did. Um, the story behind it and how they managed the fuel lines and managed to get a military force down there to do it is nothing short of impressive. Um, and honestly, it is worth its own episode at some point. So if you want to hear that, let me know. But needless to say, Britain retook the Falklands. Uh, there were some very interesting aerial battles, some interesting naval battles. Uh, they did a amphibious marine landing, retook the Falklands, and bada-boom, bada-bing. It's mostly been settled down since then. Uh, at any rate, the Falklands conflict is been pretty much limited to diplomatic banter. Oh, it's ours. No, it's ours. No, it's ours. Um, ultimately, at least last I checked, the people that live there still want to be part of the United Kingdom. Um, but obviously, Argentina is kind of just hell-bent that this is their patch of windswept rock. So they want it. Uh, at any rate, will this lead to a conflict? Um, you know, <laughs> it seems kind of absurd that anybody would fight over this this little spit of land as much as they have. But the fact Argentina has already invaded the Falklands once and Britain went to great lengths to secure it. Um, yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe they'll invade again. Maybe we'll see uh, uh, the, uh, the second Falkland Islands war. I don't think we're quite there yet, but... I'm not going to say it's an impossibility because it's already happened once. And this does seem to be a little bit of a low point between British and Argentinian relations over that particular piece of real estate. Uh, at any rate, we'll be keeping an eye on that, but I do think it's kind of humorous that even after all these years and one war where people have died, this is still something that these guys were in a bitchy slap fight over. So we'll keep an eye on it. We'll see how it goes, but that's what's happening there. And... Last but not least, the 2024 presidential elections. Now, I'll be honest, this is a geopolitical show. So, by and large, 
I like to focus on international politics and things that are happening. The problem is the United States is kind of a big part in that, and I do live in the United States, which means that major political things happening here are occasionally going to have to get brought up in this show as much as I detest the idea of having to talk about the next election cycle, which we are unfortunately and exonerably marching towards. I'm going to need another sip of coffee for this one. Mmm. All right, so where are we at on this? Well, obviously, we're a long ways off, but the avarice and the uh, antipathy is already starting. So obviously, in our lovely two-party system, there are a handful of people that have tossed their hat into the ring and running for 2024. Now, Biden, I don't think, has officially technically filed his paperwork to run. Maybe I didn't see anything that said that he had. Uh, but everything he said indicates that he has every intention of running again. Because, you know, having an octogenarian that can barely muddle through one sentence without sounding like a brain-addled lunatic is just something that we need running the country. On the other hand, the other options aren't looking especially great. You've got um, Marianne Williamson, the effective hippie from Houston who previously ran in 2020, who has also pitched her name in the hat to run as the Democratic challenger. Uh, the fact that people are willing to run against Biden and challenge him uh, signifies two things. One, effectively, they don't think he's going to make a strong contender in the next election, which I think there's a lot of good arguments to that. Um, and two, uh, that there is a lot of indecisiveness on whether Biden will actually run again. At the end of the day, I think Biden has a little bit of ego about it and probably wants to run again. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of people that are kind of going, hey, man, like, no, uh, just probably best if you didn't. Uh, but so far, the only Democrat that I at least know of that's uh, that's put their hat in the ring officially is Marianne Williamson, who will absolutely not make it. Um, <laughs> that's She's declared, and I think that's all we need to say about that. Um, so then you've got the Republicans. So what are the Republicans going to come out with? Well, the way it's shaping up right now is another large field. There's already at least four people that have tossed their hat in the ring. You've got uh, Nikki Haley, who was previously governor of South Carolina, member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, previously the ambassador of the United Nations under the Trump administration. She's tossed her hat in and has been distancing, distancing herself from the Trump brand pretty heavily and has been talking a lot of trash about how out-of-control government spending is, which she's not wrong. I've been talking about that since this podcast started. But there we are. That's one option. Next, you've got Perry Johnson, uh, CEO of Perry Johnson Registrars, Inc., and previously a candidate uh, for governor of Michigan, uh, although that didn't really work out. At any rate, he's tossed his hat in the ring. He's not a serious contender. He's never going to make it. Uh, you've got Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name, dear sir. Uh, at any rate, he's the previous CEO of Revolvent Sciences and currently the chairman of Strive Asset Management. Um, I don't know much about this guy, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that he's probably not going to be the one either. And then, of course, we have Donald Trump, who has declared his intention to run. 
our 76-year-old Don is planning on making a third bid for the presidency. And, of course, we know that he was previously the chairman of the Trump Organization and previously president of the United States of America, 2017-2021. Okay, so those are the contenders on the Republican side. What's likely to happen at this point is it's going to come down to DeSantis, who has not officially announced his intention to run but is making every single political move that would indicate he has every intention of running. Um, So very likely he's going to toss his hat in the ring uh, is the current running theory. And I think ultimately at this stage, the early call would be that it's going to be a slugfest between him and Trump to see who winds up getting it. In many ways, they come from very much the same base. And so there's a lot of concerns over how that's going to go. One theory is that perhaps there's a dual ticket where it's Trump and DeSantos uh, running on the same ticket as a way to try and unify the party. And on the other hand, Trump has even made the threat that if he doesn't get the nomination, he'll go out and create an independent party and run anyway, which would very likely split the Republican vote and all but assuredly give the um, Democrats the, uh, the, the presidency in 2024. <laughs> Which I don't think is unlikely at this point. I mean, if we're being honest, uh, the Republicans are having a crisis of identity very clearly. They have been for quite a while, and this has not gotten resolved. Um, And don't get me wrong, the Democrats are well on their way to that same crisis of identity. They're just an election cycle or two behind the Republicans who are already having this sort of internal schism. Uh, The question is, what's going to happen? I think it's going to be a slugfest between DeSantis and Trump, assuming DeSantis runs. And I think it's very likely that in a bid to appease Donald Trump, unless he just outright loses in popularity to DeSantis, it's going to be him running um, because the Republicans understand that if he splits the party, they for sure lose. And we're going to be dealing with that all over again. Um, On the other hand, you've got uh, the Democrats who... Almost assuredly, if Biden decides to run, are going to bandy around him because he's the incumbent president. Incumbent presidents historically have a greater likelihood of winning, although Biden has astonishingly low approval ratings and he's had a beleaguered first term, we'll say, not to mention the fact the guy is like 5,000 years old and looks and sounds every day of it with the greatest respects to the office of the president, of course. But the problem is it's going to be round two if it goes that direction. Now, the odds are that they could try and get Kamala Harris to run, but I think she's pretty much just as unpopular as Biden, and so I don't think that's likely. They'll probably be looking for some sort of fresh blood, but the question is who? And at this point, I don't think the Democrats know. So we're shaping up to yet another nasty, contentious, and overall belligerent presidential election cycle, uh, which will be fun to watch yet again. Um, But we'll see how it goes. There is one piece of good news, and that is that all of this doesn't really matter because the one candidate that we all have been waiting for has announced his intention to run, and that is he, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Yes, he has indicated his intention to run for president of the United States of America in the 2024 election. And I know what you're thinking. Thank God the lyrical genius is here to save us all. That's right, Kanye West, the man who answers the question, who could be in an interview with Alex Jones and actually make him seem like the most sane and lucid person in the conversation? Who would that be? It's obviously Kanye West. He's not the candidate we deserved. 
but he's the one we got. Yeah, so he's declared his intention to run, which I think will have um, a statistically irrelevant impact on the election. Uh, You heard it here first. And that's probably good for everyone involved. So, um, but hey, you know, at uh, at least we got him out there doing his thing. So there is that. We can all rest easy now. So there we go. That's some of the interesting stuff happening in the world right now. I will say that if you have any um, comments, any, uh, uh, you know, please, if you're listening to the show and you enjoy it, please feel free to uh, drop a a rating and a review on um, Apple or Spotify or wherever it is you listen to this. That's that's very much appreciated. Likewise, if you don't like it, I don't know why you're listening this far, but, um, you know, don't worry about leaving a review if you don't like it. Uh, on the other hand, if you have any questions or any topics that you for sure want me to cover on an episode, uh, please feel free to let me know. You can uh, reach out to me. I actually I actually had a, uh, someone reach out to me on LinkedIn this past week, which was very kind. They had some very nice things to say. And um, so you could do that. You could also hit me up at my uh, OGGN email, which is jordan.driscoll at OGGN.com. And uh, like I said, if you have something that you want an opinion on or you want me to do an episode around or talk about or discuss, please, by all means, let me know. I'd be very happy to look at that unless it's um, you know just completely ridiculous, in which case I'll almost assuredly talk about it. At any rate, that is our show for tonight. Um, so on that bombshell, I'm going to say this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I might be running for president one day. Who knows? Kanye West can do it. So can I. All right, see you guys in the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.